Welcome to this podcast that we call Perk It Pod. I am Eric Perkins, aka Perk. We've been interviewing who we call Minnesota sports icons and influencers, and we've got another great one today, folks. It's former American League MVP, Justin Morneau. Perk and Pond, sometimes he's at play. Perk and Pond, find out what he'll say. Perk and Pond, who's coming on today? Perk and Pond. Yeah, yeah. We appreciate you giving us a listen here. We know there's a sea of podcasts out there and appreciate you landing on our little island. Feel free to like, give us a rating, a subscription, a share, whatever. We'll keep bringing you these A-list guests and the latest a Minnesota Twins great, Justin Morneau. This Canadian came to Minnesota and made a huge splash on the major league scene, which brings us to Random Ranks. This time on Random Ranks, we list in order the greatest Canadian athletes because, of course, Morneau is from Canada. And for the sake of this top 11, we're leaving Morneau off the list, even though he'd totally be on it. And I promise you, I won't make it all hockey players. Okay, here we go. Number 11, Andrew Wiggins, right? I mean, he had a couple good years here. He's, he's all right. Number 10, Natalie Achanwa. If you're not familiar with her, she just joined the Minnesota Lynx, so we're keeping it local there too. All right, number nine, great pitcher, James Paxton. He's the guy that got that eagle landed on him out in left field, Twins game. I don't know if you remember that. Number eight, Hall of Famer, Larry Walker. And you'll hear Morno talk about Larry in this podcast. Number seven, Sprinter. This guy was the fastest man in the world. Donovan Bailey for a while <laughs> till Bolt came around. Number six, Sid the Kid, Sidney Crosby. Gosh, he should be higher. Now I'm thinking about this list. He should be higher, whatever. Okay, number five, Steve Nash. Fantastic basketball legend. All right, number four, look this one up. Clara Hughes, I'm pretty sure she's a gold medalist in two different sports. Phenomenal athlete. Number three, Ferguson Jenkins, great Chicago Cubs pitcher for all you old school po- folks. And by the way, speaking of old school, nobody more old school than Gordy Howe, who I'm putting at number two. And number one, is this really even a thing? Of course it is. Of course it's Wayne Gretzky, the great one, number one. Greatest Canadian sports athlete of all time, my opinion. And I would imagine many people's opinion. Okay, time now for Justin Morneau, who had some great seasons at first base for the Twins. We get deep into his baseball career here during this conversation. He's kind of a nerd about it. I love it. But also his new TV career as TV color analyst for the Twins broadcast and much more. And so without further ado, and even though I have no idea what a do means or is, here is our conversation, Justin Morneau. My first question to you, Justin, is like, it's that time of year where you'd normally be going down to Fort Myers and, you know, putting the cleats on and hitting the baseballs. Like, is it, are you far enough removed now from the game that you don't miss it anymore? Or do you still kind of have a hankering for it? No, I think because there's so much optimism in spring training, you know, everybody's starting over. Everyone's made except for this offseason, but everyone's made moves to they think their team is better and they're going to 
fight for a playoff spot. And, you know, you have all that optimism that goes with a full winter of working out. You feel stronger. You're excited to get back at it. And, and you know, so I've, I've been kind of getting antsy in the last uh, the last week or so. You know, even though I'm done playing and, you know, I have that special assistant role, so I go down to Fort Myers anyway, and I'm, you know, they try and have us there for the beginning of camp. So we're there for, you know, the manager's meeting and the general manager's meeting with the, with the whole group. And you still feel like you're kind of part of it a little bit and the adrenaline starts flowing. You get excited to get back out there. And, and you know, I, we got word that we're not traveling. Uh, you know, I think they, the word they used was it's going to be a skeleton crew in, in Fort Myers to try and keep uh, limited exposure as much as possible. So it doesn't look like I'll be going down to Fort Myers myself. So it's kind of, I've been looking at uh, warm places and if there's any options for me to go somewhere where it's uh where the sun's going to be shining and it's going to be 70 degrees so it's it's uh it, it does still hit you and, and you know it's funny you say that it still hits me at seven o'clock in the summer too every almost every night I, I look up and feel like I either should be checking a score or, or getting ready to play a ball game so yeah I think I don't know when that ever leaves you but uh it's still there uh, partly in the back of my mind that's outstanding I think the twins have done such a great job of kind of keeping such a connection to their, their former players, but also utilizing them in many ways. I mean, whether it's Rod Carew or Latroy Hawkins or, you know, Michael Kadire and, and the list goes on. I, I just think they've done such an outstanding job in, in keeping the alums sort of in the, in the fabric of the organization. Yeah. I think, you know, I saw it when I first came up, you know, growing up and where I grew up, uh, Obviously, the Twins, we knew who they were because of the World Series in 87 and 91. But, you know, a Midwest team, a, a smaller market, I didn't know the history of, of the franchise when I got here. And, and having a guy for me like Harmon Kilbrew around and learning the history and, and, you know, his 573 homers and, and everything he meant to the organization and then meeting him as a person and seeing the way he carried himself. And, you know, I learned so much from having him around in spring training and having conversations about, you know, he was the first guy I ever heard admit that he went up to the plate trying to hit home runs most guys saying you know they just kind of happen and he was the first guy that let me know that it was okay to go up there and, and pick a spot to try and hit a ball over the fence because that's what your job was in the middle of the lineup and and to have that knowledge and that experience and to have a hall of famer like him around and then you know you have bird around and you learn the different personalities in the in the game and and even last year for me being a guy kind of growing into my role of sitting on the bench next to rod carew for an entire ball game and picking his brain and, and learning about his life and, and what he, what his, you know, post uh, playing days have been like, and, you know, sit there for two and a half hours to have a conversation with, with a guy like Rod Carew and the knowledge and the experience he brings, I, that's very valuable. And, you know, I try and have that, you know, at least some impact on, on our younger guys, you know, I developed a pretty good relationship with, with Trevor Larnick and, and kept up to date, you know, up to date with him, you know, during all the, the lockdowns and the no minor league season last year and trying to kind of help him through it. So I think it's such a good thing for an organization to be able to do that and keep people around and, you know, what the organization believes in. And, and the Twins are such a believer in, in giving back to the community you play in and, and respecting the fans and the people around you. And, and to be able to pass that along, I think it, it's, it's only a, a lot of good things that happen because they're, they're able to keep people around. And, and we appreciate being able to do that as well. Yeah, and, and you know what, in talking to the players uh, whenever I am at spring training, um, it, it, the young guys, I'm talking like the Royce Lewis's and the Kirilovs and, and like you said, the Larnix or whoever else, Rooker and on and on. It's like 
they they are more than happy to sponge off the expertise of the guys like Tori Hunter and, or whoever else yourself who, who've been there before. And, and what a rich resource for them. <laughs> My gosh, I just hope they're so appreciative of that because it's just like, I, I, I hope they know how lucky they are. And I get the sense that they do. Yeah. It, it's amazing too. You know, I think because we all remember what it was like to be a 18 year old kid in the minor leagues. And we remember what it was like to be, first time on the 40-man roster and, and knocking on the door of the big leagues. And, you know, it's different when you have, whether they're your coaches on your team who you know are kind of reporting back to the, to the general manager or the assistant general manager or the minor league farm director. And then you have guys like us that, you know, you develop that trust and you understand that there's no bad questions and there's no, you know, it's not going to be, well, he said this. And you're not kind of running back to the front office reporting all these questions that, you know, that sometimes – an organization might not want to hear, you know, what's it like somewhere else or, you know, what'd you learn from playing in, in Pittsburgh or Colorado or whatever it was. And, and they, they feel this freedom where they can kind of relate to us. And, and they remember they were kids and they, they remember watching us play a little bit. So they, we kind of have that uh, on our side as well. But I think the highlight of me, maybe for spring training last year, I took, you know, Kirloff Larnick and, and Royce, you know, Lewis out for, for dinner and had a, you know, sat down with them for a couple hours and, and just kind of let it open up for him and let him have uh, the freedom to ask questions and and you know i think it's a valuable a valuable thing to have people around that that you can trust and that you can know that have been there and they know that you also you know for me i want to see those guys get to the place we we got to and, and maybe help them avoid some of the mistakes you usually make as, as a younger player and obviously you learn from mistakes but if you can avoid repeating those mistakes, you, you become successful a lot earlier in your career. And, and I think that's what we all try and do with these young guys. We're going to take a quick pause, but we'll be back with more from Justin Morno in a bit. But first, I want to introduce you folks to a guy that is sitting across from me right now, looking awfully dapper, by the way. <laughs> Michael Bryant, thanks so much for being here and joining us on Perkett Pod. I am glad to be here. Tell us about yourself. I, I know you're obviously the Bryant of Bradshaw and Bryant. Um, tell us about Bradshaw and Bryant. Bradshaw and Bryant is a law firm that does plaintiff's personal injury. We represent people who are injured through no fault of their own, and we also do criminal defense. So we have a full-time criminal lawyer. I've done criminal work since I started with John Bradshaw back in 1991. I still do a little bit of criminal, but for the most part, I do plaintiff personal injury and represent lots of people in car accidents. Uh, I do a number of cases involving survivors that have been sexually abused. And then we get involved in a number of different personal injury type cases. So you're a busy guy. I try to be. You mentioned Bradshaw, not Terry Bradshaw from the Pittsburgh Steelers from, <laughs> from the days of yore, right? I mean, this is, no, yeah. uh, not that guy. But, but, what, <laughs> but what about your team? How, how, many, how, many, how many are on your, uh, are on your side there? Well, we have two lawyers in the Minneapolis office, mm -hmm. uh, and then in St. Cloud, we have, uh, there's five of us. So I think total, I have anywhere between seven and nine, depending on how you do the math. And you're a sports fan, too. A uh, very big sports fan. I grew up in Rhode Island, and uh, I'm a diehard Red Sox fan, no matter what. And then I moved to Minnesota in 1982 and got infected with, you know, liking the Vikings <laughs> and, and caring about the Twins. And, and you played sports, too, growing up, right? I played hockey. Yeah. I was a goaltender. Uh, I played some juniors, and I played... Uh, I was going to play college hockey and then found out there was a lot more to life than stopping hockey pucks. And again, where can people reach you, Mike? People can reach us at minnesotapersonalinjury.com. We have a place you can comment there, and there's also a chat that pops up there. Or they can call 800-770-7008. Great chatting with you. Thanks for being a friend of Perkett Pod here, and we'll, uh, we'll catch you next time. Thank you. Mm -hmm. 
perk and pine. Yeah, yeah. As a kid growing up in, in British Columbia, was it ever on your radar that, oh, I, 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 you know, when, when did the baseball thing really kind of take you over uh, aside from hockey or whatever else you were dabbling in? Well, I see, I always loved baseball. Both my parents played, you know, fast pitch softball. My dad uh, played baseball growing up, and then there was no, you know, men's baseball by the time he was done. So he started playing fast pitch, and my mom always played fast pitch. She was a really good athlete. She's actually where I got my left-handed swing from. So it's one of those things where I was around ballparks growing up. It's not like, you know, I think everyone thinks uh, Canada, they think it's similar to a Minnesota winter, and it's, you know, cold until April and kids aren't getting outside to play little league until May. And, you know, we're outside in March playing games and, and they go, the season goes from March until, you know, Labor Day when I was younger. And then in high school, we had, you know, baseball all the way through October, get a little cold, a little rainy sometimes, but so it, it's not like it was that fringe sport. I went from six months of baseball to six months of hockey and, and my season just kind of went back and forth. And I really, there was actually a year when I was younger, where I didn't play baseball and I played spring hockey and I decided to do that. And then, you know, I didn't really hit in the winter until I got to high school until my junior and senior year of high school. So it was one of those things where I concentrated on one sport at a time, but I loved baseball. I loved uh, the challenge of learning how to hit. I love playing wiffle ball, any, mm -hmm. any game really where I could compete with my friends we played. And, and I had an older cousin that actually was 10 years older. He, was drafted by the Blue Jays. He played in the big leagues and you know, I grew up playing at Larry Walker Field. So it's not like it was completely foreign. You know, it's not like I was a, a guy, you know, Max Kepler obviously came over and played some here, but it's not like I was in Germany playing baseball. It was, we had a team, you know, the Blue Jays that were all across Canada and they yeah, were good yeah, when yeah. I was young. So that kind of helped as well. I think, you know, seeing a, a Canadian team win the World Series a couple times right after the Twins won, it was one of those things where it wasn't completely foreign to me and it was a, it was a real, I wouldn't, I, no goal really like that is realistic, but it was, a, it was an option for me that if I didn't play hockey, I could play baseball if I set my mind to it and it ended up working out for me. So I don't know. I, it was one of those things. If you, if you ask me during hockey season, what my favorite sport was, I tell you hockey. And if you ask me during baseball season, what my favorite sport was, I tell you baseball. So yeah. it was one of those things where, I, it was always just a love of sports and ended up that I was better at baseball. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and having been to Vancouver for like when the wild play the Canucks in the playoffs and, and seeing that city and how just vibrant and fervent they are over their Canucks. It's just, it's like, it's almost like going to green Bay and seeing the Packers where it's like, it is the ticket in town, you know? And I could, I could understand how growing up, like you got so enamored with that sport because it's just, uh, and they were always so good too. Yeah. It's amazing. It's an amazing place. Obviously you have, you know, Canadian football league, you have the BC lions, you have professional soccer there, but I mean, the talk of sports, even in June and July, there is still hockey. It's still Canucks. It's still, you know, it's, it's a, it's the, it's the number one sport, but then you've got, you've got Seattle and you've got baseball in Seattle. You know, you've got, people drive down across the border to go watch games like I did as a kid. You've got the Seahawks there that people watch the NFL. So, but hockey still is number one. And, and well, baseball is, it's a big sport there. It's, it's a, it's something because of the climate, you know, it's a unique climate to Canada. 
you see a lot of players come out of there as well. One of my coolest moments in, in sports casting in my career period um, was uh, the 2010 Winter Olympics and getting to be uh, at the men's gold medal game between Canada and USA. And it went down to the wire and Crosby scored a game winner from some crazy angle to win it. I think it was 2-1 or something like that. But like, I remember being in the bowels because we had it, we were in the mix zone waiting for players to leave the ice after the game. And I can't even tell you how unbelievably thunderous that arena. It was like, we were, it was like a bomb went off when that, when that goal went in and like, he's, you know, this Canadian pride winning the gold medal and the golden boy scores the game winner. I mean, it was like, it was like this perfect script. And I remember just like, it was just, it was such a rush. And then we went outside because I had to race back to get to the NBC, you know, hub to feed back all this stuff. And the, the, the streets were just, it was like, it was a giant party, man. It was just Molson, Molson for all. It was like, it was insane. It was absolutely insane. It was just chaotic. It was, it was such a cool moment. And I was bummed the USA lost, but I'm sure you were stoked that the, uh, the Habs won it or whatever. Oh yeah. We were watching, you know, it's funny because there was a lot of things. So I went up there for the beginning of that. Uh, we were there during the opening, opening ceremonies. We didn't actually go to the opening ceremonies, but uh, went out after and met up with Gretzky that night. Oh my God. And, uh, oh sat my in the God. lobby uh, of the Hyatt having, uh, having a couple of cocktails with, uh, with Wayne. And uh, it, it was just such a surreal night. And then we went to a couple events. I think we saw Ono break the, uh, the medals record in speed skating. We went to that. And then uh, as the hockey was going on, I was talking to Larry Walker and I'm, I'm, going, hey, should we fly up for the gold medal game? How are we going to get tickets? I'm going to ask Gardy for permission to leave spring training so I can go up there. We're going to fly up, go to the game, and then turn right back around because Larry Walker, he lives in Florida. So we had this whole plan devised, and I text Gardy, and I said, hey, what do you think about me flying up and missing a couple days of camp and going up to the, to the Canada game? And crickets, I got nothing back. So I figured it was a question he didn't want to answer and didn't want to tell me no and <laughs> didn't want to deal with the storm that would have followed that. But uh, – so we watched it on TV, and, and I remember it was amazing. I think I was as shocked as everybody because of the weird angle of that goal. And it was kind of like a delayed reaction, and, and Crosby was the only one throwing his stuff up in the air for about a second and a half, and then everyone realized it went in. And then, you know, like you said, mayhem, oh. mayhem and, and chaos. and Because, you know, Vancouver was a place where when they lost the finals in 94 to the Rangers, there was a riot. When they lost to the Bruins, there was a riot. And it was good to see everyone just have a moment to be able to celebrate. Nothing goofy happened after that, but uh, yeah, it was a it was such a crazy special time for everybody. You know, it was a that's a that's a great hockey talent for somewhere that's never won a Stanley Cup. That was kind of the moment that everybody needed as hockey fans in that area. Yeah, for sure. Um, just just fantastic. <laughs> it was awesome. Um, and it was nice to not be up in Whistler. I mean, don't get me wrong. Whistler is about as cool a place as there is. But uh, but uh, like, you know, we, we were I felt like I was always going back and forth from Vancouver to Whistler um, because we were also like on full on Lindsey Vaughn mode because she's she's from Minnesota, you know, and, and it was just like I, I, I remember getting. It was like getting the golden ticket to go to that game. It was just phenomenal. Anyway, so yeah, um, the the uh, then the baseball career came. You were a catcher. 
initially, which I think some people forget. Like that, you were that. That was your, that was your initial gig, wasn't it? Yeah, I was drafted as a catcher, and I, I actually started catching when I was six. So my brother uh, was two, always two years ahead of me in sports. We we're a year and a half apart, but so I played on his team, the eight nine year old team, as a six year old, and they they kind of had a catcher, but they didn't really have a catcher. And I'd go back there and. I just followed my big brother around and said, dad, I, I want to be a catcher. That's all I, I ever wanted to be was a catcher and a goalie. And I started catching when I was six and, you know, I, I had a, there was some knock on my defense, but uh, in the minor leagues and, and, you know, they said, all right, well, your fastest path to the big leagues is probably going to be if you play first base. And I was reluctant to move and, and I caught actually a couple of years in the minor leagues and, you know, was learning that position, but, I guess it was for the better. I don't know. The plan was to keep me healthy and <laughs> whether that worked or not, I don't know. But uh, yeah. I loved catching. I loved working through a game with a pitcher. I loved trying to get a guy out a different way a second time and, and you know, navigating around a team's best hitter and all the little things, the, the little nuances that go into to being a catcher. And, and, and then I think it helped me also offensively because I didn't have as much time to think about my at-bats. You know, when you play first base, you might go an inning or two without ever having a play. You're obviously paying attention, but your mind can wander. If your mind wanders for one pitch as a catcher, it can cost you the game. You know, if you if you get yeah. over there and you're thinking, man, I can't believe I rolled over on that first pitch changeup, my last at-bat, and then all of a sudden you start thinking about your at-bats and, and two pitches go by and you look up and you go, uh-oh, <laughs> you can't get away with that as a catcher. So I don't know. It was the position that I just I, – I love. The plays in front of you, you're kind of the commander of the field. You set the tone for the offense – or for the defense. And, and, you know, you develop this relationship with your pitching staff, and they're dependent on you. And you have to learn the personalities of all those guys. I mean, there were so many things that went into it that I just really loved. And, and when I moved, I had a tough time playing first base. I had a tough time staying focused and, and trying to figure out what to, what to concentrate on. And eventually I figured it out. I worked hard over there and, and got better. But, yeah, that was that was a position that – I would encourage anybody to play if you want to learn the game the fastest. It's such a tough position. You have to be the toughest player on the field. You have to be willing to take foul tips. And, and then you have to understand the game and situations and everything else. So it's, it's the best position on the field, in my opinion. I wonder, I wonder if your goalie skills helped with your catching skills or vice versa even, like, growing up, you know? I don't, see, I always wondered that, too. I get asked that question. I think uh, I just maybe just had a few screws loose that, I would stand in front of some, somebody throwing as hard as they could, and I would take. I would stand in front of somebody shooting a puck as fast as they could. So <laughs> I don't know if they translated or not, but it was one of those things where I don't know. I, I just love those positions. It's okay to have a screw loose, by the way. But but don't you? Aren't isn't that like kind of like you think about Maurer and and uh, and making that a, a eventual shift to first base? You're talking about the wear and tear. You can kind of understand why why that that made sense in his career to, to, to go over there. Right. Well, especially somebody as tall as him. Yeah. He's a, I think people don't realize until you stand next to him, but he's a, he's about as close to six, five as you can get. And all that up, down, up, down, up, down. And, you know, for, for somebody who's five, eight or five, 10, and it's a lot shorter distance to move. There's less, uh, less going on. And, and for him, what he did and, you know, I wish just for his Hall of Fame case that maybe he could have got a couple more years back there. But I think, in my opinion, what he did as a catcher wasn't done in the history of the game. You know, it was one of those things yep. where 
people, uh, people, you know, knock on what his off offensively compared to other first basemen, what he did. I don't think that's fair. I think you have to look at his career as a whole. And I think you have to look at him as a catcher and, and see what he did there. And, and, you know, batting title, something that had never been done in the history of, of the game. Yeah. He did as a catcher. And, and I think that's, why he should be in the Hall of Fame, but I 100% agree. Argument and a whole other story, oh, but yeah, yeah, it is, and I, but I totally agree with you. All right, more coming up with Justin Morneau. But first, we got to take this time to chat with Sean Bernard, who is kind enough to be here with us today. Sean Bernard is an as a real estate agent for Edina Realty, kind of a rock star real estate agent, aren't you? <laughs> I have fun, man. That's a, that's the a reason why I'm glad that I did this partnership with you and sponsor your show is that we both have a similar mindset that we are going to have a good time. Well, we appreciate you, you know, being a friend of, of, of Perkett pod and, and helping us out in so many ways. But if you would talk about your, your agency and, and, uh, and what you're able to do as an agent. Well, yeah, you know, it, it really comes down to the homework, you know, doing your homework, doing the research. And I pride myself on that. I learned a long time ago that I'm a big nerd this time of the year. What I'm really working on is people that are planning three to six to nine months from now. Uh, if people are interested, if it's you or somebody else you know that's interested in buying or selling, give me a call at 612-859-2594. That number is also text-worthy. And if you're listening to this podcast and you love music, I got a great podcast for you to listen to. It's The Brian Oak Show. Give that a listen anywhere you find your podcasts. Perk and You had some great years with the Twins. Obviously, you know, some, some splashy moments like winning a home run derby and, and, and winning an MVP for crying out loud. I mean, what, what do you, why did it click so well for you as a twin? And, and in that, especially that early part of your career where you were just you were like a monster, man. Well, I think obviously playing on good teams helped. You know, when you come up in an environment where you're expected to win, you have to buy into the program. You can't be an individual. I think that's part of the challenge now of all the rebuilds the teams are going through. It's, all right, we're going to go to the big leagues. We're just going to reward you with a job. You're not really having to force your way there. You're just the next in line. And it's okay to struggle for a couple of years. You can hit 200 in the big leagues, and we're just going to keep you here. There isn't that, you know, that sense of urgency that, that we had when we were coming up. If, if you didn't get the job done, they were going to find somebody else because we were expected to make the playoffs every year you know, from the time I came into the big leagues and, you know, it got a little rough in 2011, but, you know, for the first seven, eight years of my career, we were expected to be a playoff team and expected to, to do your job and, and hit in the middle of that lineup and drive in runs and do all the things you need to do to win. So I was surrounded by guys who set the tone of buy into this program, don't be an individual. And, and, and then surrounded by good coaches. I think uh, when Joe Vavra took over as the hitting coach, I think that really, played a big part in, in me, you know, becoming a better offensive player, having a developing a better plan and, and, you know, discipline within the strike zone and all the different things. And, and I don't know, it was just one of those things that, you know, I always believed I could hit. And then I had somebody all of a sudden behind me telling me the same thing and, and you know, pushing me in the right direction and getting me to focus on the right things and, and being surrounded by a guy in front of you that gets on base, you know, 40 to 42% of the time. And, you know, prototypical leadoff guy stealing bases and getting the scoring position. And I think we just surrounded, you know, I was surrounded by so many other great players that that helped me a lot. 
It sounded like you were a student of the game too. And, and you, I get that sense when I hear you on the, on the broadcast now where you just, you're just so, the knowledge is just like, what it, you must have immersed yourself pretty heavily in, in, you know, all that stuff, the science of hitting the, the art of the game and all that stuff. Is that accurate? Yeah. Yes. I, 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 I love the game of baseball. I think it's hard to, you know, explain my obsession level with the game of baseball because it was just one of those – all I ever wanted to do was play sports. I love going to school so that I can go to recess and we play street hockey outside and lunchtime. We'd have – you know, recess was 10 to 15 minutes and we'd play hockey. So I always loved sports. And, and then being around a guy like Tom Kelly, whose attention to detail and, and his attention to playing first base and, and everything he taught me about how to watch a game. And, you know, when the ball's put in play, if you want to learn something, if you ever want to manage, he said, whatever you do, don't watch the ball. Watch everything else. Watch where the right fielder is going. Watch who's backing up a play. Watch all these different things. And he taught me what to look for. And, and you know, once you're around guys like that, that just kind of take it to another level and, and, you know, don't do the general things. It's like, okay, you master the basic skills of being able to catch every ground ball. And then all of a sudden you move to the next level of being able to make a diving play or make a throw on the run. or And then understand the importance of base running and learning that from a guy like Paul Molitor and, and – you know, having him make making base talking base running interesting it, it was just I think the twins did such a good job of having these people with this knowledge of intimate knowledge of the game of baseball that wasn't just numbers it wasn't just stats and, and it was you know how to think the game how to think through situations how to prepare yourself how to think ahead of plays so you're not surprised when they happen and, and all those little things and, and it's it's amazing because when I played we'd get done, I'd go home and then I'd sit on the couch and watch West coast games. And, and huh. I was trying to learn as much as I humanly possibly could while I was playing the game of baseball. And, and, and I'm still, you know, I still watch games. I still try and learn things. I still listen to, you know, the, the color guys and I still listen to the play by play guys. And, and you just pick up little things here and there and, and, and then you hope it expands your knowledge and then you're able to pass it along. So I don't know. It's something I've always loved and, and, it's something that I really enjoy is, is continuing to learn about the game because yeah. you're never really, you're never really done learning about the game of baseball. You go to the park and you can see something that you've never seen before. Almost every time you go to a game, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty cool how the game just continues on like that. And, and, and so speaking of Molly, Oh my gosh, his, his IQ for baseball is actually scary. It's just, he's, he was awesome. <laughs> he, he was awesome uh, when he was the skipper to cover because it was just like, you, you could just get lost in what he was saying. And just like, it's just, there's so many rabbit holes of his knowledge. It seemed like. It is. It's amazing. And yeah. I mean, uh, there is not one person I've ever met that could make talking base running interesting. And he made it. So you're hanging on every word <laughs> that he was telling you about. Yeah. And different ways to get to third base and, and just so many different things, little nuances of which foot to hit the base with uh, and how to dip your shoulder when you're making a turn going around a base and just all these little things that, that you never really thought about or, or most people don't teach because it's something that is overlooked in the game of baseball. But one run in one game can lead to one more win. And for a team like ours that played game 163 two years in a row to either win one more game or lose one more game, and that can always come back to base running. And it's taking an extra base somewhere and scoring an extra run and winning an extra game Either you don't play that game 163 because you're not in the playoffs or it can help you push into a playoff spot. And when it's put that way to you, it makes so much sense. And, and then you learn it from a guy like that. And it's, it's, it's amazing. To, and you feel fortunate to be able to have a guy like that around as a resource. 
Well, speaking of base running, I don't want to bring up a dark time, but like, you know, then, then that, that's where you suffered that, uh, that concussion. And how, how much did that rock your world? It just seemed like that, that after that, things were just a lot more challenging for you. Yeah, I think, unfortunately, that was the start of a lot of injuries after that as well. But it wasn't just that. It was dealt with a lot of neck stuff after that. Yeah. Really limited my ability to lift as much weight as I, as, you know, as I could before and, you know, spend that time. I spent so much time in the offseason doing rehab stuff that, you know, as opposed to when you're younger and you're trying to, you know, I had a, I had a lot of trouble keeping weight on. I would usually lose 10 to 15 pounds from the start of spring training to the end of the season. So, I would spend my entire winter building up and, and trying to get back to a certain weight and, and strength. And a lot of times I was just spending that rehabbing from different surgeries or injuries or whatever it was. And it was harder to get back to that point. But I think the biggest thing for me, and it's a lot easier to admit this now, I think I never wanted to admit it while I was still playing. But, you know, I, the first time in my life, I actually had to play with some type of fear or some type of feeling that I wasn't invincible. You know, there was never any fear standing in the batter's box, whether it was, you know, CC Sabathia or, or any of the other, you know, dominant hard throwing left-handers of, of our time, that there was that thought that sometimes crept in the back of my head, whether I was standing in the neon deck circle or wherever it was thinking of, if he lets one fly right here, I could go back through that situation because, you know, that post-concussion stuff was miserable. I wouldn't wish, wish that upon you know, my worst enemy of, of going through that roller coaster every day and every week and just dragging on for as long as it, as it did. And the thought of having to go through that again was, I think it was, you know, scary for me. It was one of those things where as a young player and a young person, you feel invincible in so many situations that, you know, you maybe speed when you probably shouldn't, or you, you know, you, you take chances that you don't take when you're, as you get older, because you realize that <laughs> bad things can happen. And, and so I think the biggest thing for me was there was always that little bit of doubt or that always that little bit of fear in the back of my mind that I always tried to push to the side, but sometimes had trouble doing. And, and, and I think that kind of affected me as well. I don't think I was, I was, you know, as fearless when I stood in that batter's box as I did when I was younger and, and, you know, whether I control that or not, I tried, but it was a difficult thing. And I think I dealt with that the rest of my career. Yeah, but you, you still you still managed to have some good years. Um, what Rockies, Pirates, White Sox, and and then it was time to kind of morph into the 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 new role of uh, well, I I know I know you're also a dad, uh, and that's that that takes up uh, a lot of your energy and space and time in a good way. And uh, and but the broadcasting too. That, that, that's 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 I think you're fantastic at it. And I, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not obviously just saying that, but I know that that's kind of a common consensus opinion out there from twins fans and twins territory that listen to you. Um, a you're, you're still incredibly likable and, and you're, you're held in a really high regard around here, but B your knowledge and your, but your ability to relate that. Cause you can, you can go like, I mean, you can, you can run the risk of being like, I'm not talking to you, but like somebody that's, that has as much knowledge of the game, it can, it doesn't always translate into the broadcasting. Do you know what I'm saying? They can just be like such nerds where they just don't, where you don't even 
but you make it really relatable and and you really are succinct with your points in in a way that like marries well with the with the play-by-play -play and the commentary broadcast model i think well thank you i i appreciate it you know it's funny one of those things because you know, i've said this before but as a young player as a young draftee i was very shy and, and i mean you get me on tv it's a little different i mean you get me in a room full of people i'm still not exactly comfortable speaking in front of a room full of people but I don't, I don't know it was one of those things i never would have pictured myself doing if you asked me when i was 18 even if you asked me when i was 25 and it was something that was suggested to me by my wife because maybe she got tired of listening to me talk to the tv but uh <laughs> <laughs> i had so many conversations with dick that that uh you know she said, you know, you should just go and do that for a while and see if you can do it because you might find somebody who actually wants to listen to you. <laughs> but funny, uh, funny. you got to love the honesty of a wife. But it was one of those things uh, where I learned a lot from watching games and listening to Blue Jays games growing up and listening to Buck Martinez. And, and, you know, the way I try and do it or the way I look at it is I'm talking to myself sitting at home, getting home from school, you know, on the West Coast at 4 o'clock, those Blue Jays games would come on. And I, I kind of picture myself sitting in my living room as a 16 or a 17 year old kid soaking up everything about the game of baseball. And that's who I'm trying to explain it to. And, and that's who, you know, some people have more knowledge than that. Some people have a lot more knowledge than that, but you know, I, I try not to make it sound like I know more than the people I'm listening to. I'm just trying to explain, you know, maybe why a guy did something or why a guy, a certain thought process and, because I feel like anybody can watch a game and go, wow, that was a boneheaded play. I mean, why'd that guy do that? I think that's the pretty easy thing to do. So I try and get to the why of, of you know, a guy overthrew the cutoff man or a guy took a huge turn and, and looked like a, just a horrible base running mistake when, yes, if you're down five to two, it is. But if you're up five to two, maybe you take a little, few more chances on the bases, you know, just little things like that, that, mm. that I don't know. I don't know if it's, to simplify the game but it's just more to understand it as a, as a young person or a high school kid who's really trying to learn the game yeah but there's also there's also that rhythm that back and forth with the play-by-play -play person and knowing when to insert knowing when to shut up because the next play is coming or whatever you know what i'm saying and i think that that's that's something you kind of adapted to pretty quickly as well it seemed like yeah and i think you know i've had some good people at, at, at fox sports north you know we've in the first part of the, you know, I first started doing games, we went in, you know, just like I would do as a hitter and break down tape. We went in and, and, you know, broke down video and go through, okay, this is when you did this, we really like this. And then, you know, try and avoid doing this. And, and I was given some tips on when to talk and when to, you know, when to lay off and when to let Dick do his thing and when to let him kind of take over and, and understand that, that there's a, there's a time for me to talk and there's a time for him to talk. And, and it, it was almost a whole new learning process again last year because without fans in the stands, oh, yeah. you know, so a guy weird. hits a big home run to tie a game, you know, at home. And all of a sudden there's 30,000 people on their feet screaming and you don't have to say anything. The guy's rounding the bases and the camera's on his face. And then it's, you know, panning to the people in the stands and, and you're letting the moment kind of take over. Yep. And then all of a sudden there's nobody in the stands and you've got, <laughs> You know, you've got 20 to 30 seconds of, of uh, what seems like dead air and is awkward. And I've never, ever considered myself to be a play-by-play -play guy. I've never, you know, I, I 
you know, one of the knocks I think I hear is that I'm, you know, not overly enthusiastic, but I never felt like that was my job. So, you know, I'm not out there for them to hear me come up with some cliche home run call. Right. I'm out there to describe, you know, the pitch or the hit, you know, you know, what the swing looked like or whatever it is. So we kind of had to relearn of, of what a home run trot looks like and, and what the big moments look like with, yes, we've got fake crowd noise in there, but it's not the same as 30,000 people, on, you know, biting their nails and on the edge of their seat waiting for that next play to happen. So it was almost like I, I learned how to broadcast one way for the first couple of years. And then all of a sudden this craziness hit of the, of the last, you know, year or so. And, and then we had to learn how to do it again. So it was a, another learning experience. And it looks like we might be in for a lot of the same for at least the first half of the season this year, but it's still baseball and we still enjoy it and we still have fun doing it. So. There you go. There you go. Hey, uh, just a couple more quick questions. And, and these are just more for personal curiosity than anything else, Justin. I, I, somebody said, and I didn't believe it. That, are you a beekeeper? Like, do you have like a, a do you, do you raise bees? Like, I don't even know what that's called. Like, is that, or the avi apier? No, I don't even know what it's called. Do you, is that a thing? I probably, I probably should know that. Um, yeah, we had uh, four hives last year. So we have hives. I, I do, we tap our trees on our property for maple syrup. So we boil down the sap and make syrup. And these are all things that I did nothing growing up because yeah. all I ever did growing up was play sports. My mom always had a garden. My grandparents always had a garden. They always kind of, you know, canned vegetables and fruit and all that stuff. But for me, it was one of those things that I was looking for some way to challenge myself and looking when I started changing my diet towards the latter part of my career, I, I, you know, found ways to eat healthier and then started doing research on different things and, and just kind of learning new skills and learning new ways to do things. So then I got a beekeeper, I got a couple of hives and got a beekeeper suit and learned how to do that. I got, uh, you know, some maple syrup pans and some burners and learned how to do that whole thing. And, oh my and gosh. just kind of been, yeah, we have, yeah, it's been, uh, you know, I do what most people when they retire at 65, I just started doing that at 36 or 37 <laughs> so it's one of those things where it's cool to have and then it's I think it's interesting for our kids you know I, I can't golf every day I can't I just I can't carve out five hours in the summer to do that and, and I just feel guilty most of the time I'm there so I think but at the same time I think my kids need to see me work and they need to understand that everything we have in our life was based on, you know, good fortune and opportunity, but also hard work and, and an immense, immense amount of hard work. And if all they're seeing me do is look like I'm on vacation all the time, it's going to be hard for, to set that example for them. So it was one of those ways where I thought, okay, we can, we can learn how to do these skills and they can see me go out and work and they can see me, uh, you know, kind of put in some hours and, and do some things that uh, also will maybe keep us a little bit healthier and, and you know, learn some skills that maybe they'll take with them and, and have good memories growing up. So it was kind of uh, something that I fell into, but now I've started to enjoy and, and really enjoy learning from it because it's a challenge and it's something new every year. Oh my gosh, that's awesome. And and yeah, we should mention you you have stayed in Minnesota post-career and uh, or, or into your new career and and uh, you, you've called this place home now and uh, you, you clearly you clearly like it, huh? Yeah, and it's 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 amazing. You know, people will ask me, you know, how do you live there in the winter? You know, you get it gets cold and I said well growing up I loved hockey but all I ever played with street hockey the first time I ever skated outside was in Minnesota actually before my wedding up at, at Bowers you know Landy had the perfect sheet of ice and we went up there and skated you know with uh, with all my groomsmen and, and everything else and you know I have a hockey rink in my backyard and it was one of those things that 
I always dreamed of growing up and whether it's, I claim it's for the kids or it's actually for me, it's, that's a whole nother story, but uh, <laughs> you know, I spent a lot of time on that rink and I have a lot of pride in that. And, and that's what keeps me kind of busy in the winter. And, and then I, I like to look at it as a, you know, memories, you know, for my kids growing up. Yeah. Thinking of, Oh yeah, we had a rink growing up and, you know, dad took care of that. And, and, you know, it's yeah. one of those things where another thing where I can show them it, it, everyone who has an outdoor rink understands that it's about 10 hours of work for every hour of skating and that's about right. So they see me out there and if I can spend some time with them, if I get an extra hour or two with my kids, teaching them lessons and just, you know, being around them and it's something that, that I do. So, you know, I've really, the first time I came to Minnesota, I, maybe I didn't picture myself living here. And then all of a sudden you start to meet the people and you start to understand that Minnesota nice isn't just a cliche. It's not just something you know, people say it's a great place to raise a family. And that's why we settled here. And, and we really enjoy being part of uh, the community and, and around uh, such great people. That'll do it for this episode of Perkett Pod. We want to thank our partners, Audio Wiz, Justin Bailey, theme song by Taylor Robert. Keep listening weekly for another episode with Minnesota sports influencers and icons on Perkett Pod. Feel free to share this podcast. Give us a simple subscribe click. It doesn't cost you a thing. Heart us, rate us, double tap us, whatever you want. And until next time, remember, shine bright. Don't be afraid to be weird and open your hearts to inclusion. Peace. Perk and Pond, sometimes he's at play. Perk and Pond, find out what he'll say. Perk and Pond, who's coming on today? Perk and Pond.